Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Well, what a climb down by Zara. Sure, that's a big one within 24 hours after the founder of Maclosa appearing on The Money Show last night. I'm not saying that's why they've pulled back, but suddenly there was a blaze of publicity and Zara's decided to pull the Maclosa lookalike socks off the shelves. We'll talk about that with the brand expert in just a moment. Consumer confidence flying off the shelves. VAT, big changes coming, but um, one of the guys who helped create VAT is saying it might not work. And then later on, five things you need to know about the minimum wage. All of that coming up on tonight's money show the money show on 702 your number one news and talk station So the Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. So your fast fact question for you this evening, which tycoon is trying to sell his Dassault Falcon 900C and Boeing business jet, respectively, in London and New York? South African businessman trying to sell his Falcon and his Boeing business jet. Both of those are for sale in London and New York. Who is that person on 31702-31567 here on The Money Show? 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. Well, the first time in history that business confidence has gone up by so much in a single quarter. It's quite extraordinary uh, to see it. But the RAND under huge pressure. What should we talk about first? Let's talk about the RAND. Let's get the bad news out the way. Mamelo Matitinka is the uh, FNB economist. And Mamelo, 12 RAND 50 to the dollar. I didn't think we'd see it as quickly as we have. But boy, here it is right here, right now. What's going on with the RAND? Yeah, I think we certainly didn't anticipate it to come this quickly. Um, I think there's been a lot of revisions across the market in terms of where the currency is heading. And it does seem as if, you know, this time around, it's not local factors that are weighing on the rand. It's what's happening internationally. It's more of a dollar story. So what we've seen is that uh, 10-year treasuries have increased. So they've broken that psychological level of three, uh, 3%. And we're starting to see that. Um, money flowing back um, into the U.S. So it's not an essay-specific story. Um, other emerging market currencies have also depreciated on the uh, on the back of this. But as we know, um, you know, the rand is a high beta currency, so um, its depreciation is always um, a little bit more exaggerated. So um, I, I think anyway that the the rise in treasuries um, basically reflects um, higher expectations of inflation. And this is on the back of um, commodity prices that are increasing. And, of course, as you know, the Fed is hiking interest rates. Um, so those are some of the factors that have contributed to the weakness in the currency. Now, it's fallen hard and fast. I'm sure it'll bounce back soon. But yo, 12 Rand 50 suddenly is a bit of a culture shock. It comes against the backdrop of the Bureau for Economic Research. They've been doing research into consumer confidence for the last 36 years. And suddenly, in this last quarter, it has rebounded to record levels. And never such a big jump in a single quarter has been registered before. It's the Cyril Spring. It's the Rama Forum. 
Victoria, it's the hype and the excitement of political change. Definitely. I think also the jump needs to be viewed in the context of how the index has performed historically. So since the beginning of 2015, we saw that um, the, the, the index was registered, was in a negative territory. Um, in fact, it was, it's been negative for three years up until the end of last year. And for the first time, we're seeing that trend um, has broken and the index has jumped um, quite considerably. I think that, um, of course, as you say, it's on the back of this optimism of this new dawn that the president um, keeps referring to. Uh, but I think that, you know, the momentum is going to be very difficult to be um, sustained. I think we would need to see economic growth actually coming to the fore um, for confidence to, 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 to remain um, well above zero. Because confidence is about sentiment, not fact, not initially anyway. And if we don't get facts to batter, back up the confidence uh, or back up the sentiment, we, we lose the confidence. We may feel better emotionally, but it's going to be the evidence that the changes are yielding real economic improvement, which still have to come through. That will tell us whether or not this is going to be a sustainable, uh, sustainable recovery in that confidence level. Definitely. I think, you know, look at the, the questions that are asked to the participants of the survey, two of the questions forward-looking indicators. We are asked, uh, we ask the consumer about um, the economic outlook, and then we also ask them about their financial prospects 12 months from now. Um, so and we saw that those two indices also jumped to record high. So consumers expect the economy to be in a better place in 12 months, and they definitely expect their financial position to be better um, in 12 months. And of course, if we don't see the necessary um, policy and reform um, that gets um, that um, consumers to where they anticipate to be in 12 months' time, we'll see confidence numbers uh, pull back quite a bit. That'll be the consequences. Mamelo, thank you, FNB economist Mamelo Matikinka on The Money Show. Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Well, big news today, and it's really good from a property rights perspective that um, the Matosa brand is going to live to fight another day. Zara backing down uh, from carrying Matosa lookalike products on its shelves. Intidex, the parent company of Zara, has the utmost respect, they say, for individual creativity and takes all claims concerning third-party intellectual property rights very seriously. As a preventative action, the process to immediately remove this item from both stores and online was activated the moment the situation was brought to our attention. The company has already started an internal investigation and will be in contact with Matosa's rep- representatives to clarify and resolve the situation as swiftly as possible. Sizakele uh, Marutule is the chief executive and founder of Marutule and Company. This is a big victory for uh, for David versus the Goliath. I know it is, Bruce. Thank you for having me. <laughs> your smile. I am chuckling. I'm chuckling, but also I'm very upset. Okay, now tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me why you're chuckling and also upset at the same time. I am. I am upset because I think we we have to stop playing nicely and call these things what they are. Right. So this is not cultural appropriation. It's not a uh, a a mistake made by some junior in some marketing department. This is theft. Yep. So let's just call it what intellectual it is, right? property so, theft, uh, trademark theft. Call it what you like. Yep. Exactly. And and if Zara is honest about being respectful of these things, then it wouldn't have left the building because it would be part of the culture. 
So what we're seeing here is a multinational brand that clearly has lost steam because this is what makes it difficult is that it's getting harder and harder, Bruce, for brands to be distinctive. And they're starting to look to this continent, which has for the longest time been the source of amazing creativity. They're starting to look to this place for amazing ideas, but rather than engage and show adequate and due respect, they want to sneak in the middle of the night when they're caught out and then say, oops, we really didn't mean to do that. But how do you expect in the 21st century where everybody's got a phone, a, a camera in their phone, everyone's got access to some form of social media and a network of some description that's got access to a bigger network and um, has got access to a hashtag that you can possibly get away with that anymore? You, I, I suspect that this is a signifier of something much bigger, right? I, I think it, it's a signifier of this ingrained entitlement and privilege that says anything that's on the continent is up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Because this is not the first time, right? We had our H&M and we had the recent example at Starbucks and we congratulate them for shutting stores to go and teach people something about cultural communication. Mm-hmm. But I think what's happening here is that there's an assumption that stuff that comes from the continent is craft. But if it comes from elsewhere, <laughs> it's called excellence. And that's problematic. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, and it happens so often. One looks at the big design houses of the world, and what they have done over many years is they've hired great designers to shape their brands. And so Stella McCartney worked for uh, somebody famous. And I mean, these yeah. guys, and, and people have built their own equity and their own brands off the back of established brands. And that's how global design has grown and exploded. Zara, should be you should be going to the Gaza Macross and saying, could we bring you in house, please? Let's take you global along with us. Fantastic. If but also here's proof that common sense is in common, right? Because you and I can figure it out. But somebody as Zara just thinks that's not what they want to do. So my suggestion here is hire cultural strategists, have them sit at executive levels and have everyone in your team schooled about multicultural branding and multicultural communication. It's no longer an excuse to say I didn't know. It's also not an excuse to apologize because you've been caught. What you need to do is do your homework. And Zara, in this case, you truly have failed. You've offended and failed. Offended and failed and acted. Have they, have they got any, do you give them any credit at all for acting as quickly as they have once they were bust? No, I don't. Okay. I, you, you, you had no business getting out the, <laughs> the door in the first place. <laughs> Very uncompromising Sizakela Marutule this evening, chief executive and founder of Marutule and Company. But yeah, victory for the little guy and really good to see. The Select Committee chairperson uh, today in Parliament, the chairperson of the Select Committee on Trade and International Relationships, uh, uh, Eddie, uh, Eddie Makue, welcoming Zara's move to remove Makosa socks, copied from a local designer. Makue saying the domination of the market by well-established brands and companies was bad, especially if it led to suffocation of local entrepreneurs. With the ambit of trade, we're looking at localization, empowerment, and inclusive growth that enhances the empowerment of black designers as well as, as patent laws. Um, and this is what is so important in that we, we've got great assets in South Africa, very creative people who are looking for access to markets. And by all means, Zara, give uh, South African designers access to markets, but ensure that there's a fair deal. Employ the designer, pay the designer a royalty to design a line for you. Don't steal what isn't yours. If I walked into a Zara store and put one of uh, a pair of socks or underpants into my pocket and walked out, you'd have me thrown in jail. That's what you would do to me. That's what you did to him. That's not right. The Money Show. The Markets.
<laughs> oh dear, in so much trouble. Always in trouble. It's lovely to be in trouble. Sorry, Yvonne and Ramsach. Uh, Bruce, Stella McCartney worked for Chloe. Really, Bruce? I'm sorry. Who is Chloe? Oh, it's, it's a brand. Oh, now I understand. Please, the last time I went... <laughs> oh, dear, I have to be dragged to the shops. I don't know who Chloe is. I can't do Chloe from a Max Mara. I really couldn't. Um, lots of you getting absolutely right. The answer to the question this evening, our fast fact question, and that is, which South African has got not one but two private jets up for sale, one in the UK and one in the United States? One is a Boeing um, and uh, one is a Dassault Falcon 900C. Lots of you getting it right. I can tell you this much um it is not and i don't know um whether or not uh the great south african entrepreneur mark shuttleworth has a private jet i mean he certainly had a rocket into space but i don't think he's got a private jet no it's not him and it's not Chris becker who else could it be? 31702 and 31567. Market's taking a beating on the day. Viv Govindam is a portfolio manager at Rand Swiss. Uh, the, my entire screen was red today. I looked at Asia, I looked at Europe, I looked at the United States, I looked at South Africa, and, and it looked like downtown Johannesburg. The streets were covered in red. <laughs> exactly. And it actually started in the US. If you look at yesterday when they actually started trading, it wasn't that bad. And then it started going down over the, the period. And I think the interest rate uh, issues are definitely you know, a question in the market. And, you know, I, I remember there's a famous saying in the markets, if the Fed is doing something and it's not working, guess what? It's the most profitable thing in the English language. When the Fed does something, it will work eventually. Mm. The Fed's raising rates, it will effectively bring markets down eventually. Yeah, and markets are coming down a bit, down to below 57,000 after a good sharp rally. Not too many winners on the day. Some of the Rand hedges coming through, a couple of big stories bouncing about. Annual general meeting for British American Tobacco, which has been almost in free fall for the last couple of weeks. And they are looking at new generation products in order to kill their customers more slowly um, or, or just eventually rather than suddenly. Um, and British American Tobacco, as a result of its less addictive sort of philosophy going forward, um, is going to pay the price for that. Yeah, look, it, it's true. But I mean, I, I I do think that, you know, in an environment like this year, when weed eventually becomes, you know, something that everybody in the world is smoking, these tobacco companies are going to be seeing a bit of a, a bounce back, maybe. But you're right. These the, Everyone knows tobacco is terrible and it kills you. You know, there's not a, a question about that. The possibility right now that these guys are kind of floating about is things like, for instance, vaping won't kill you as quickly. It won't, you know, maybe it's not as dangerous as the uh, tobacco products used to smoke in the past. And that is something that they have to move towards. The question then arises is, are they going to have the same cachet that they used to have in the past. Are people going to want to buy Stuyvesant, you know, uh, vapes? Are they want to buy Stuyvesant when, like I said, when marijuana becomes more widely available? Do they want to have branded marijuana? You know what I mean? Are they going to be able to do the same you, thing? With you do wonder how long that's going to take before Philip Morris International and uh, British American Tobacco, these guys go, well, it's legal, so let's put it into a box and put a label on it. Almost mm, certainly. Yeah. I mean, it's the same kind of uh, procedure, effectively, smoking, it's that kind mm. of thing. The vapes will work just as well, uh, or so I'm told. <laughs> but, <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. But the, the, I think a product like this here is something that, of course, is a declining industry. It was always that idea. Uh, and if they can innovate themselves out and get themselves a bit of a longer you know, decline uh, you know, mm. period, it's, uh, it's something that actually will boost their valuation over time. Talk about a long-term declining industry. That's the gold sector. Goldfields did an interesting thing a couple of years ago in which it spun out its South African assets into Sibanya, but it kept the South deep mine because it didn't think it would get any real value for it. This was the mine that nearly broke uh, Brett Kebble's soul, um, and the, the Kebble curse continues to lurk around uh, Goldfields because South Deep continues to be the albatross around the neck of the company. Yeah, look, I mean, and in fact, if you did actually go the other way around and 
go for the stuffing assets as opposed to the uh, you know go the international assets. You would have done better for quite some time. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, when it comes to these these mines, they are old, they are you know troublesome. Uh, it's not exactly a great environment to be in. Uh, not just locally, internationally as well. You're finding a lot of these companies, mining companies, coming under pressure. I think a recent, I won't quite remember which country it was, but it was a 190 billion dollar fine being uh, assessed on one of these gold companies uh, by the government in, I think it was Zambia or some Central African country. Uh, and it was a huge, you know, thing that we saw, but we also seen similar kind of moves happening for other countries around the world. Being in mining at the moment is not a, a great thing to be in. It's not uh, a case where they're asking you for massive royalties. Is you're getting sued for huge amounts of uh, you know damage to health and environment, which is obviously something these guys are doing. It's not exactly the cleanest industry in the world uh, in places like South America, etc. So uh, overall, gold uh, you know hasn't really come back really nicely. You know, inflation isn't great. Uh, uncertainty in the world hasn't really driven anything you know positively towards the wheel of metal. Uh, and at the same time, like I said, uh, headwinds in terms of production, in terms of you know the general environment. But yeah, equity markets are getting pounded, currencies are getting nailed, and the gold price is doing nothing. nothing. Usually under these sorts of circumstances, we'd expect the dollar price of gold to be ticking upwards. Why did Barlow World fall so hard and so sharply today? They announced the sale of uh, their equipment assets uh, in, in the equipment sales businesses in Iberia, so the Spanish mm. region and that peninsula. Um, I thought it looked like a pretty good statement, but the market hated it. I look at the Caterpillar price. did about the same amount. So, ah, okay. And Barlow yeah. World are the, uh, are the official African distributors of Caterpillar products. So yeah. that's the that's yeah. the link. It's almost the same. I think it's like 6% or so. And it was a similar kind of move here. So I thought it was very you know, strongly linked, the two of them. Uh, yeah, you were right. I mean, so we didn't see anything like, you know, that would have said, okay, Barlow World looks special. But uh, I think the Caterpillar link is probably what's caused that kind of move coming through. Um, okay, so that was the reason why Barlow World fell. Naspars has been steadily hemorrhaging all the way down to 2,950 rand today after peaking last year at over 4,000 rand a share. Some of it is as a result of a stronger rand. That would have hurt them quite badly. But there's this global aversion to technology companies all of a sudden, and that is Tencent, and that's what's hitting Naspars. Oh, most certainly. It's, again, the exact same kind of reason, you know, the international operations uh, of, of, of a company that these guys have a link to uh, is under pressure. Look, I think uh, Tencent, to a certain extent, is, is, is caught in a bit of a trap, you know. Uh, the Chinese government, to a certain extent, is what the reason for them to be. If it wasn't for the Chinese government, there would not be a Tencent Baidu and those kind of things around because, you know, we'd have the same issue we have in India, we have in Europe, we have in South America and South Africa. The American, you know, it's called Twitters and Facebooks and Googles would have taken over that market as well. But the, the other issue that's sort is the fact that the Chinese government doesn't like the internet to grow very quickly, doesn't like, you know, things to happen that it can't monitor easily. Uh, and, you know, the Chinese government is weird. Uh, I don't know if you've ever if you've seen this, that uh, there's, a, there's a black mirror episode of Black Murray is uh, like a Twilight uh, Zone show. No wonder I haven't seen it. Yeah. Okay. And they have a thing they're called a social credit. So you basically have a social credit and if you fall below a certain amount, people won't hire you, people won't talk to you, etc. Right? It's the future. China is doing it. There's uh. 11 million people in China because their social credit is too low. The number that is too low, they can't take a plate. But 4 million people can't get on a train because their social credit number is too low. What gets you a social credit number that's too low? Criticizing the party, associating with somebody to criticize the party gets you a lower number, jaywalking and all these kind of weird things, traffic fines. So effectively, that's the kind of environment you're going towards in China. And it's a weird social experiment. If it works, it's amazing. Uh, But that being said, you've got to understand that Tencent is protected, created by the Chinese government, but also that's the big vulnerability about it as well. The yeah. Chinese government is weird and can hit them as well. And yeah. prices has fallen quite substantially recently. The, that social credit thing, I really wouldn't mind it at all as long as I was the one making, <laughs> making the rules on that. Boy, I'd make some great rules. What rules would you make if you had to determine social credits in South Africa? <gasps> 
oof, we could become like Australia overnight. Could you imagine? The nanny state <laughs> supreme. Viv Governor, thank you very much for coming in. Today's market uh, commentator, Viv Governor, who is a portfolio manager at Rand Swiss. Well, earlier on, on The Money Show, I asked you in our fast fact. I said to you, uh, which South African uh, rich guy is selling two of his aircraft, private aircraft, one in the United States and one in the UK? Um, and some of you have said Marcus Uester and a couple of other names have come to the fore. But the vast majority of you have got it absolutely right. And that is Christo Visa. Huffington Post, South Africa, reporting today. Visa confirmed that he is selling the two aircraft and was quite surprised that anybody was interested. Hold on. Sorry, Wim, but really, you're surprised that anybody's interested? Your wealth goes from $7 billion to below a billion and you get knocked off the Forbes rich list and you're selling your planes? Of course we're interested. He says he's awaiting offers and then will decide whether or not to let them go. Besides which, he wants to buy another plane and doesn't need to. Christo Visa, selling two jets if you're in the market and need in a hurry to get anywhere. Um, if the Guptas have got any money left, they might want to pick them up for a song. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, coming up on your next Money Show, ahead of the long weekend, personal finance expert Warren Ingram taking your personal finance questions. He'll also talk about understanding the rules of the investment game. Plus, also looking at assets versus cash and how you should get your growth assets in line and the business guru, Pavlo Fatidi, some sage advice on small business. Get your questions to us nice and early so that we can put them to our experts next time on The Money Show. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Good evening and welcome to The Money Show. We're going to be talking to the economist, Dr. Raja Bedian, at about quarter past seven this evening, Chief Executive of Pan-African Investments and Research Services, all about the minimum wage and the huge row around the minimum wage. Um, South Africa has not had a minimum wage environment, and so um, suddenly we've got one. And for many, many South Africans who earn considerably less than the current level of the minimum wage, it would be a step up in the world. But trade union groupings um, demanding a living wage, saying that the maximum four and a half thousand rand that you might be able to earn out of taking a 20 rand an hour job should you be able to get a job that employed you permanently to earn that simply is undignified i mean you know you could you survive on four and a half thousand rand a month could your family survive on four and a half thousand rand a month could you even put the fuel that it takes to go into your car at four and a half thousand rand a month certainly i doubt it and so here is a very contentious South Africa issue. Do you create a minimum wage to get as many people into the work environment as possible in order to give people that first job that gives them the opportunity to get the next job? Or do you, at risk of excluding people from the economy, put a minimum wage into 12,500 Rand and then hope that somehow uh, the economy is able to absorb uh, a million or two million people? I can't see it. I don't understand the mathematics on this. Need to get the trade union movements on it. But in the meantime, Dr. Raja Bedian, at about quarter past seven tonight, explaining it all here on The Money Show. 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. Well, such an interesting phenomenon, and that is cryptocurrencies. Has anyone 
you know, have you made money? I mean, it actually bought a cryptocurrency and then traded it for, can I call it real money? Uh, but have you made a profit? Most people who have asked me about the wisdom of putting real money into Bitcoin in the last six months or so were doing so at numbers much higher than 10,000 Rand or thereabouts at a time. I'm sure the price did spike over 20,000 Rand, but I doubt very much you would have sold it at that point. And then it collapsed all the way back down to six or 7,000 Rand. And recently there's been a modest recovery. Enough people have been playing in crypto markets for SARS, though, to start treating it seriously. And the tax expert, Ruan van Eerden at Geneva Management Group, Group joins us this evening on The Money Show. And Ruan, I mean, assuming somebody did have the wisdom to buy at a dollar and sell at $20,000 a Bitcoin, they would have made a very tidy profit. SARS now wants a piece of that action, saying that Bitcoin is a real source of wealth and can create wealth and therefore should be taxed. Is it fair? Hi, Bruce. Thank you for having me. Uh, yes, you you are correct. There are various aspects that need to be considered in this thing. And now SARS have taken the first step, probably not the correct way in going about um, issuing a media release when they were when we were all anticipating an interpretation, of it, which is a little bit more formal. But they've at least taken some sort of a stand. Whether that stand is correct, uh, you know, remains to be seen because at the moment SARS treats it as an asset uh, for capital gains tax or for potentially income income tax purposes. But there's also this debate as to whether it should actually be regarded as currency. And there are vastly different tax consequences to both. Now, what I'm seeing in practice at the moment is there's, there's a lot of confusion. Um, people are scrambling to get tax advice. They want to make sure what their position actually is. And I can see that in the next uh, few years to come, um, SARS obviously is money, but I think there's going to be a lot of dispute. Um, on the rise as a result of this. Now, I mean, here's an interesting thing. Is is Bitcoin a currency or is it an asset class? Um, people well, want to treat it like a currency, but you can't go to the shops and buy your bottle of milk with Bitcoin, not in many places anyway that I'm aware of. Um, so maybe it's an asset uh, or maybe it's a gambling win. What is it? Well, let's look at what the international community or the international tax authorities look at it currently. If you look at the US, India and Canada, all of them uh, in Australia also, they're looking at it as an asset or an intangible type of approach. So I can see probably where SARS took their cue from and they will regard them um, in the same type of vein as an asset. So if you're doing it um, on revenue account, you'll be taxed accordingly um, from an income tax perspective. And if it's um, as a long-term investor, you'll be taxed on capital account. However, there's a bit of a difference from a Japanese perspective because they've regarded it as full legal tender. Now, SARS's approach and the way they define, or I'll take it, um, take, a, take a stab at a definition of a currency is not necessarily the correct approach because there is no such definition in the act at the moment. The only way that you can deal with, um, for, with foreign currency is if it is an exchange item. But at the moment, SARS doesn't deal with it specifically in the Income Tax Act. And I think where, there are, where a gap in the system arises from a South African perspective is the Reserve Bank. Because the Reserve Bank actually needs to step up, in, in this case, and make a decision as to whether or not it's regarded as legal currency in South Africa. Now, there's an interesting little um, little section in the exchange control regulations that actually deals with the concept of a foreign currency. And it essentially states that it is any legal tender, uh, any foreign currency or any legal tender that is not um, that cannot be used in South Africa. Now, strangely enough, if the Japanese regard it as, as legal tender in that currency, it should be regarded as foreign currency in South Africa. So the Reserve Bank needs to play a much bigger role here and determine from their perspective what their view on cryptocurrency is and I think from a SARS perspective, they can take the cues from that as well and maybe draft something proper into the legislation or issue a proper interpretation of it rather than what I think was a bit of a cop-out 
through a media release. So what should one do if one owns a cryptocurrency and one is in the black on one's crypto assets? Um, how should you behave right now should you look to sell that Bitcoin, for example? So from a disclosure perspective, there's no doubt that you need to disclose um, that trade from a taxation perspective, whether it's income or capital. Now, what a person should be looking at currently is if you are in the money, and even if you're not in the money and there are potential losses to be made on disposal, and there are many people that are in that same position, you need to get tax advice. You need to be able to classify what exactly your specific trades are. Are you trading in the cryptocurrency? Are you mining? Are you bartering? So you need to go to a tax professional, determine what your specific circumstances are, take a position from a tax perspective, and then disclose accordingly. And to the extent that SARS challenges your, um, your view on your crypto- cryptocurrency trades, you need to be able to make sure that you've got evidence to back up your views taken from a taxation perspective and defend it accordingly. But now, cryptocurrencies, by their very nature and by their design, are borderless. Um, and uh, if there was a, a cryptocurrency ATM in a Dubai, for example, um, and I decided to go on an extended holiday and then convert my cryptocurrencies in Dubai for dirham and then from dirham into euros, pounds, dollars and yen um, and, and set off on a global holiday, um, that becomes quite difficult for SARS to trace other than if they look at my passport stamps and say, so how did you manage that 12-year holiday? holiday on uh, on 30,000 rand. It's, it's correct. And there, there are two aspects to consider from this. Number one, SARS have made uh, a big noise about the fact that they are talking with technology companies to get the information quicker and from a disclosure perspective, track um, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency owners. It's going to be more difficult than what they anticipate. So you are going to rely on voluntary compliance from a taxpayer's perspective, which is going to be difficult in itself. Now, you don't, don't want to be caught in a position where you've earned money, you've converted it into fiat currency, and you've used that money without paying your taxes. The other consideration for people that they should not lose sight of is the exchange control problem that could arise where you externalize capital out of South Africa without going through the correct channels. So if you externalize funds um, from South Africa, not through your investment allowance or through your discretionary allowance, and you convert that into Bitcoin or into a foreign currency offshore, you could be in the radar of the Reserve Bank, never mind the South African Revenue Service. So there are a whole range of considerations that people need to take into account before they go and trade with, 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 uh, with cryptocurrency and go and spend it or, or, or convert it into fiat currency and go on an extended holiday, as you mentioned. I mean, the fact is, if you've made easy money for virtually nothing on anything, um, you, you're a lunatic not to disclose on the basis of... You actually sleep at night, I suppose. You 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 would get a full night's rest, and you you give the authorities no reason to come and sniff around your underwear drawer. I, I fully agree with that. Um, a full disclosure is the way to go. The difficulty is that you may find a SARS auditor at this stage in time where they number one they don't understand the cryptocurrency and how it works, and you may find that you will you'll get disputes where when you get into the radar of SARS, they will more than likely record it as income and you're going to have a huge battle on your hands to defend it as a capital item. And from a disclosure perspective, there's no doubt you have to disclose, but you need to get your ducks in a row to defend your position as much as possible. But then the onus is on SARS. Surely in their interest and in the interests of South Africans who have been drawn into this very exciting and vibrant new market to provide the absolute clarity in the interests of fairness. I fully agree with you, Bruce. The, uh, one, they, they have a couple of options. Number one, they can put a place legislation, they can draft legislation to specifically deal with this and make it beyond doubt. 
Secondly, the media release doesn't say much. It's not law. Uh, it doesn't have to be followed by taxpayers, and it can be challenged. What's interesting, an interpretation note may be the better way to go. And based on the recent constitutional court case that was uh, it was delivered this morning, an interpretation note carries more weight um, than what taxpayers um, thought of previously. So SARS should take a much, much stronger view in clarifying their position on currency versus asset. And I believe the Reserve Bank must play a much bigger role in also um, getting this uh, to, uh, to a point where everybody can understand what they need to do. What was the constitutional court case this morning in small words and, and briefly? Essentially, it was, it was a case that had to deal with whether or not an administrator's interpretation um, of, a, of a specific se- section carries, uh, c- uh, carries weight. And the Constitutional Court held that the inter- an interpretation issued by SARS um, should be taken into consideration, where in most cases, um, as tax practitioners, interpretation notes um, does not co- they do not constitute law, and generally they, they shouldn't be followed. And the Constitutional um, Court held now that they should carry more weight than what they previously did. And it's quite an important aspect, which means that SARS's interpretation notes need to be read carefully. And SARS can use an interpretation, and I think as a very good tool to place taxpayers in a position to know exactly what their view on a, on a tax position is and then act accordingly without running into too many disputes. Okay, so SARS just got itself more power to dictate to you and your tax affairs, essentially. But potentially. And the difficulty is, because you're sitting with a constitutional court decision, it's going to take a while, if ever, uh, another case ends up before them that can challenge that position at the moment. Thank you. Ruan van Eerden, Managing Director for Tax and Exchange Control at Geneva Management Group. Fascinating world of cryptocurrencies and how tax authorities around the world are trying to get their paws on it. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Well, early evening statement from Business Leadership South Africa on apparent unity talks with the Black Business Council. Uh, Business Leadership South Africa is saying it's seen the media reports referring to a merger with the BBC, Black Business Council. They say they confirmed that they are in talks with the Black Business Council, but the talks are aimed at seeing the Black Business Council return to an apex body of business. This is not about a merger. Far too early for that with the Black Business Council and Black uh, Business Leadership South Africa. Uh, they said the architecture and modalities of such a return have yet to be agreed. So early days yet between the Black Business Council and Business Leadership South Africa. But something is happening between the two parties. High time too. 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. Well, this time yesterday, we were getting details coming through about changes to VAT, the way in which uh, National Treasury is dealing with the fact that there is this basket of fairly hard to to enjoy goods um, that was set up 25 years ago when VAT was in its infancy that were VAT free, um, and they include pulses and some beans and pilchards and things like that. And with the VAT rate going up in uh, March, April this year from 14 to 15%, there's been a huge amount of pressure on government to change the basket, to make the basket more 21st century. Charles DeVette, partner PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC, and one of the architects of the, uh, of the VAT system in South Africa, you're concerned that this isn't going to work. Why might it fail, Charles DeVette? Hi, Bruce. I'm very concerned about the, the, the timelines uh, and the scope of the work that needs to be done. So it's really a big ask for, uh, for a committee. They need to look at the existing list. They need to see whether, whether that works. They need to maybe uh, refine it slightly and add additional products uh, to it. Then they need to think about other food items that could be added 
uh, to that list that maybe would achieve a better result than the, the current ones do. And then the third aspect is they talk about, uh, I mean, other measures, you know, maybe food vouchers, maybe the, the food scheme, maybe through other mechanisms so that the, uh, the, the result of the, the, the zero rating or VAT-free component ends up in the poorest households uh, where it should. So that, that, that's a really broad um, uh, brief that they've been given. Then it talks about a review process within the confines of the current fiscal framework, which I think we must read to say what the current zero ratings are costing us now need to be substituted with this new list, but don't take any of the additional $23 billion that the 1% increase uh, has, has created because we can't afford that at the moment. And then this all needs to be done and dusted by the 30th of, uh, of June when they need to report to the, to the minister so he can make it a plan to get it into the jam-packed parliamentary uh, framework. So I think it's a very difficult space in a very short time, a space of time. You're not disputing the fact, though, that there needs to be a discussion on what is VAT-free and what should and should not be included in that list. That surely is a critical, um, st- a critical discussion to be had in South Africa uh, with income disparities in the way in which South Africa is structured. I, I agree that that uh, uh, conversation is absolutely critical. I think a very important component of that is that there has to be a proper public consultation process. Everybody must be given an opportunity to to present and to talk about what works for them and what will have an impact uh, of that. And I think that it, to, to take hasty decisions in this place, I understand there's pressure for all kinds of uh, reasons currently as to why it should happen quickly. But if you, if, if you take the wrong decision now, it's very difficult to reverse that later on. So any benefit that you've granted and let's say by chance we end up on, 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 on completely the, the, the wrong product, it could cost us money forever. So the process is important, mm. but then let's do it properly and not rush it. I mean, we've had the chicken industry put their oar in and say that they would like to see chicken zero rated. That would come at a cost of 5 billion rand. 5 billion out of the 23 is a big chunk of the gains that have been made by this 1% VAT increase. Um, and it's the amount of money, for example, that SAA needs to stay afloat this year. So, I mean, for every action, there is a consequence, and that is precisely why you're urging caution. I, exactly the point. So I think that you know one needs to economically make sure that we that we get that right. We need to kick the tires a little bit about you know whether whether there's more money available than what is I mean the, sort of the benefit out of the out of the current uh, list. And and we need to get it right because we do need to look after the poorest house, households when uh, when we do this. But we we have to go about it systematically and not just rush into it. My thanks to you, Charles DeVert, partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers, somebody who understands the VAT system intimately cautioning against uh, rushing this particular process. The consequences could be very, very expensive. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Well, The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show. Arthur Goldstock in studio this evening, Managing Director of Worldwide Works. We'll talk to him in just a moment about business unusual. Um, and then we've got Iraj Abedian joining us. Uh, he is going to talk about the big five things you need to know about the minimum wage. And it's such a wonderfully contentious issue um, where in a country where so many people earn considerably less on average than 20 rand an hour, if you are on a social 
Marshall Grant, um, you're getting the equivalent, I suppose, of under 10 rand an hour in real terms. Um, so the minimum wage would be twice the social grant uh, wage, if you like. And uh, we've got uh, Saftu, the new trade union movement, and as well as Zima Vavi, who my producer said, we really should get him on the radio tonight. I was like, he's not going to have any voice left by the time he, uh, the evening comes. And he's been uh, very busy today. Quite an impressive turnout in downtown Johannesburg. A big march, probably bigger than anyone had expected. Certainly, I don't think the general strike that was called today was very effective. But certainly the turnout and the discipline of the marches today certainly seems to have been very much intact as Zima Vavi looks to rebuild his career as a trades unionist. And then at half past seven tonight, a guy who, and Pablo always tells us, in order to create a business, you need to solve a problem. So this guy solved his own problem. And that was he was feeling a little bit chunky. He was feeling a little bit unhealthy. And um, he was pressed for time and life was tough and he, he, he couldn't get decent food. So he thought, well, let me start a company that produces healthier uh, meals, ready meals, and you can freeze them and defrost them and cook them and warm them up at home. And it's a step better than the manufactured stuff in the, fa- in, in the factories. Maybe 10 steps better. I don't know. He can answer that question for you at half past seven. The Money Show. Business unusual. Arthur Goldstein, KMD of Worldwide Works. You're still traveling the world, three countries a week, 10 at a time. Good evening, Bruce. Uh, the last two months, strange enough, I've been homebound. Homebound being South Africa bound, that is, but it starts again next week. What is it? I mean, you go to all the global tech shows, you do lots of speaking globally. It's, it's a fun life. All of the above. I have to say it's the getting there or being there is incredibly enjoyable, but getting, <laughs> getting there, there is so painful. Yeah. So next week is Dell Tech World in Las Vegas. And uh, it starts paining on you a while in terms of being in Las Vegas, but the show itself, and I've been for, I think this is my fourth one, is spectacular. The speakers they have and the thinking that they unleash, I would say, and the technology they unveil is incredible. It gives you such a great roadmap for the future. Now, I thought in this high-tech world that we're all living in and entering and participating in, you should have to lie in your bed in your pajamas and stream it to your laptop and and experience the full event there. By now, surely. I always thought that's the way it would happen. And when we have virtual reality that's photorealistic, that doesn't have to be tied by a wire to a computer, then perhaps we can get closer to that uh, level. But uh, for now, actually being face-to-face with people, shaking their hand physically, touching their products, that actually beats virtual reality hands down. But that's the point that I'm trying to make, is that for all of tech's wonder and for all of tech's genius, human interaction is something we still seek and it's still stuff that we want, which is what makes the, the world of business unusual so interesting. Please tell me the shape of the future. Um, we're not talking about uh, pecs and abs and stuff, but what does the future look like? It's, it's a, a scary it's, place. It's a fascinating question, and it's exactly that topic I've been talking about a lot in the last while, especially after my last trip to Las Vegas, which was for the Consumer Ele- Electronics Show, which is the launch pad for all the new technology that's going to be um, launched, unveiled, or developed over the next 6 to 18 months. And uh, that starts giving you an idea of how consumer technology and business is going to shift in the coming years and the changing shape of that. You can't say exactly how it will affect business, but you can start seeing how business will be conducted or what technologies will be used. And just to use the consumer version very quickly, if you look at what Spotify is doing to music, that's the music streaming service on your mobile phone, and Netflix doing to movies, it's essentially changing the need for people to have 
dedicated equipment for listening to music or for receiving uh, the uh, video entertainment on a TV set. So right now, you the, the typical person who's addicted to entertainment has got a, a massive DSTV set up and antenna and the works. With a streaming video, Netflix, Showmax and the like, and fiber to the home, which is now a few hundred thousand South Africans, you suddenly find that the need for that additional equipment goes away. A, fr- a friend of mine was telling me the other day that, I mean, he really likes this new innovation. Um, his wife is devastated by it. She's English. <laughs> she, she grew up in an era where it was time for this particular show. So the family gathered around the television. They sat down together. They watched the show. They experienced the show. They talked to each other during the ad breaks and, and, and caught up with each other's emotions during the show. And it was a completely integrated family experience his household now is a household of four different devices where he's watching um something very worthy um his wife is watching dramas and his kids are are different stages of development are watching different levels of kids programming all of them are in the room at the same time but all of them are wearing headphones not to disturb the others and are engaging one-on-one with a device to the exclusion of the rest of the family. You wouldn't believe how common that scenario is and how common the debate is around that issue of the old versus the new. In our household, uh, for example, the big challenge is how do we now keep up with news? But we have on the streaming video services also pinpointed specific shows that we all want to watch together. And then there are those that some of us watch together and those that we watch uh, separately. So there needs to be group activity. There needs to be group activity. You need to make time. It's like in the olden days it was have a meal together. Now it's watch a TV show together (laughs) uh, of some description. But but those are the, it's a wondrous evolution, but it does change culture and it does change society. There's no question. And the astonishing thing to bear in mind is that in the business world, we're going to start having these kind of uh, debates. So, for example, artificial intelligence is very real. It's uh, coming at us very fast. We just haven't seen it arrive yet. And uh, the Will we know when it does? Suddenly we're like, my finger doesn't work anymore. Oh, I can't <laughs> um, We won't know when we've stopped using our own intelligence. Yeah. We won't be intelligent enough to know that. But uh, for the, the st- statistics I'd love to share around AI uh, globally or in Silicon Valley is that in April last year, there were something like 1,700 startups getting venture capital uh, in the AI, artificial intelligence area, and they generated something like $13.5 billion in VC. That is April. By December, it had passed the 2,000 mark, and the total VC going to just the AI companies was $27 billion. So it doubled in eight months last year. And then uh, you start drilling down into those numbers, and you see that in Israel alone, there is $3.5 billion in VC going to about 300 companies in AI alone in one country that is feeding into Silicon Valley. That's where the big opportunity lies at the moment, is coming up with AI startups and AI concepts that will feed that Silicon Valley machine, that will feed the venture capital machine. And for anybody who thinks that you can't be replaced by a machine, just think for a moment. Just I'm going to challenge everybody. Just think for a moment. How many phone numbers... Do you know? You know your own phone number, I hope, so you can tell other people what it is. I had to check in my phone the other day what my home phone number was. Um, You know your spouse's number. Hopefully, if your children have numbers, you know those numbers. I don't. I don't know my kids' phone numbers. 
And have you ever phoned them? Do you know anyone else's phone number? I don't anymore. I used to know a lot of phone numbers because that's what you had to do. You had to physically pick up a receiver and punch in a number or dial in a number. Was I was growing up, dial a, a, a churn a, a, a handle on the side of the phone and ask an operator to, co- to connect you to, to phone numbers. And we've already lost that ability to remember numbers. Do you think we're going to know when AI comes in and, and, and steals our jobs? No, we're not. It's going to happen one day and you won't, you won't get in the building. The reality is that automation has been taking jobs for a long time. So people say robots are going to take 5 million jobs by 2022. Well, they've taken far more than 5 million jobs in the last decade or two when we look at robots as automation. Now you add AI to robots and it's going to take a lot more jobs, but it's also going to create a lot of jobs. These uh, 2,000 AI startups are employing thousands and even tens of thousands of people because they need people to write the code. Eventually... The, the code will write itself. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. Um, in fact, you stole my thunder. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> luckily, that's not my only thunder. So um, is a storm of information. <laughs> um, but, but that's the reality is as, as we create the technology that gets cleverer and cleverer and is able to learn stuff, it starts to do the work that up until now only we have been able to do longhand with mathematics and algorithms. There's no question about it. In fact, it takes away a lot of the drudge work, but the creative work and the decision-making, it can't yet replace. That's yet. But uh, there's, there's a fascinating statistic. Um, and I was fortunate to, a couple of years ago to attend a talk by Paul Maritz, who was the number three at Microsoft behind Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer for many years. And he's a South African, um, matriculated here and then went to university in Scotland and then joined Intel and in Microsoft. He left Microsoft with a small fortune and helped found VMware, which is the world's leading um, cloud architecture uh, business and VMware is part of EMC, which was bought by Dell. So it's uh, all interconnected. But he spoke at EMC World a couple of years ago, where he uh, spoke about the cycle of innovation and the cycle of uh, new product launches. And he explained how, for example, a hamburger in traditional research and development would take 18 months from a development to putting it on the menu, to evaluating it, to coming back to the drawing board to decide whether it worked or not. That 18-month cycle also applies in banking, new banking products and the like. What Google, Facebook and Amazon have done in terms of using big data and artificial intelligence um, and the like is they've brought that 18-month cycle down to two hours. I was going to say 18 minutes, but yeah. <laughs> and the, the sure. next step is, the next step is 18 minutes and, yeah. the, and the next step is 18 seconds. I, I, we, and you want to believe that that research has the same level of integrity as the long 18-month process. Um, and, you, and you don't, you know, do machines make assumptions? We don't know. We, we don't, but at the same time, what we can say is that so much data has been collected simultaneously yeah. that you can get far more accurate results than if you spent 18 months. What you don't get is changes over time from that, but then you can track that as well. Mm. You can include that in, in your tracking. So that is what is going to change the shape of business. That's what's going to produce businesses very unusual in uh, the next decade, the ability to use all the data that's coming in to analyze it and to make decisions fast. But the challenge is making those decisions and making the right decisions. And, and, and yeah, I mean, this is your bread and butter. This is what gets you up in the morning. This is what excites you. But does it ever scare Arthur Goldstuck at the, the pace of change, the rate of change? And the fact is, 
we can't see what it's going to be, even five years from now, never mind 10. One of my mantras is that change is my currency. Change is, is what I work with, so I enjoy a change. But when I look at the implications, sometimes it does scare me. When I look at, for example, what uh, the Russians were able to do with Facebook data to manipulate the American elections, and I think of the use of artificial intelligence and on the scale that it's coming, and what we're going to have in the next five years, that does frighten me how we are going to be manipulated, how cybersecurity, for example, is going to be an even greater arms race than it currently is, where the cyber criminals use these tools to uh, breach our financial systems. On that happy note, Arthur Goldstock, the Managing Director of Worldwide Works, have a good trip uh, to Las Vegas next week um, and uh, look forward to keeping an eye on you on social media. Thank Arthur you, Arthur Goldstock, Managing Director of Worldwide Works. The Money Show. The Big Five. The Big Five brought to you by Worksman's Attorneys, your legal specialist for success for the last century. Keeping you close for 100 years, visit worksmans.com. The Big Five things you need to know about the minimum wage. Dr. Raja Bedian, Chief Executive at Pan African Investments and Research Services. The double edged sword of the minimum wage. Raj, what's good, what's bad? Good evening and good evening to the listeners. Uh, the, the good thing is that if we get it right, we could help reduce the, the massive inequality in the society. The bad thing is that if you get it wrong, you're going to cause more job losses in a society that already got a very, very high level of unemployment. Uh, typically, minimum wage uh, legislation uh, helps or, or is effective when the economy is growing, when um, the skill in the labor force is such that as the economy grows, demand for labor goes up, and therefore um, businesses are able to absorb at the margin a higher wage than otherwise. Um, and of course, when the economy stagnates, the uh, companies are struggling to begin with um, they are not globally competitive or the skill base of the labor force is not good enough. And then on top of it, you add to their cost base and that doesn't help job creation and job security. So there are pros and cons in introducing a minimum wage. The other problem, of course, is that all sectors are not equally uh, economically robust, profitable or productive Agriculture is very different from banking. Banking is different from um, from mining, etc., etc. And the, the choice of minimum wage has to be very, very carefully selected. And how does one pitch a level? Today we saw the big protest, and one of the key issues there was that the 20 rand an hour minimum wage was simply insufficient. But how does an economy figure out, or players within an economy figure out, what the right level is for a minimum wage? Well, to begin with, you want to make sure that whoever is employed is able to take care of their minimum living expenses. So the basic, if you like, poverty line is the starting point. Um, of course, uh, one would want working individuals have the ability not only to take care of their minimum living expenses, but to have ability to save and slowly, slowly build up their, um, their resilience or, or buffer, if you prefer, uh, in terms of availability of some savings and building wealth, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where the starting point is. So we need to start saying 
And of course, uh, Bruce, one of the sad facts of our society is that um, based on some estimates, some 54% of those who have a job in the mining sector, in the agriculture sector, and in many other sectors, they actually are working poor, which means whatever they get paid is not sufficient to take care of their basic subsistence. Yeah, I mean, one looks at at best, if you're earning 20 rand an hour and you're working lots of hours, you can come up with 4,500 rand a month, which I challenged my listeners to earlier this evening to live off, and uh, it's not a popular call, not not for a moment. Uh, there's also the risk, of course, is that, you know, you mentioned earlier that not every segment of the economy can afford the minimum wage, and um, a lot of the political rhetoric around this is, well, chief executives earn millions every year, but not every employer has got a chief executive that earns millions. Some are small businesses, some are family businesses that are barely holding it together as it is. And if you pitch that minimum wage too high, well, then come job losses because so small businesses have to find other ways to, to make their living. Absolutely. I mean, that's the hub of the matter, that trade unions as well as businesses, they always sensationalize. They go to the extreme. If there are 10 people who get... Uh, those type of salaries, they become, uh, they, they're, they're projected as if that's the norm. Many chief executives <laughs> are not making a fraction of that. Uh, but of course, at the other extreme, we need to be equally conscious not to sensationalize that. Uh, and the, the reality is that many of our working individuals do get a very, very low wage. And we need to say, is that because the sector in which or the region in which they operate and Bruce, we have a society which is regionally very, very diverse. If you're in the middle of the Karoo and you want a domestic worker, you're not going to, you, you, the family itself may not have the, the income or the means to pay three and a half thousand as, as, a, as a minimum wage. But if you're in Johannesburg and in Sanson uh, as a family, and if you're paying three and a half thousand rand, you're not paying enough. So again, within the same sector, the domestic homework, uh, you you have a vast regional differences in agriculture the same, and so it goes. So it's a very very tricky thing. There's a lot of emotions and there's a lot of misrepresentation by all involved. Yeah, and it's a huge issue though. But this all sort of solves itself if you get a level of inclusive growth that generates jobs, that creates a jobs-hungry economy where people are brought into a system, perhaps on a minimum wage, receive a level of skills that they might not have received had they not got that first job, and then are pulled through uh, an economy and, and, and grow and develop uh, th- through, through the work system. Of course, uh, that's absolutely true. But even more important than that, if we can get the skill base of our labor force, and I would submit until and unless we get the education system and the skill base of our labor force such that individuals can get into the, into the uh, market on their own terms at a rate much higher than any minimum wage that any legislation would introduce, we're not going to solve this issue. But we have a short-term problem, and I think this minimum wage debate is meant to deal with this historic legacy of unemployability, meaning people who do not have the skills that the market requires and prepares to pay for it. The deeply complex issue, beautifully explained as always by Dr. Iraj Abedian, Chief Executive at Pan-African Investments and Research Services. The Money Show. Shape shifters. 
Shapeshifter this evening, Wayne Kaminsky, who is not only in his own right a shapeshifter, but he helps people shift their shape as well. He is the chief executive and founder at Fit Chef. And there's a saying, there are lots of sayings when it comes to food. You are what you eat. And I suppose nowadays you are what you eat and drink. Um, and uh, that is the, the, the reality of, of, of modern day eating. Wayne Kaminsky is with us. You you are an exercise addict. I mean, you, you chiseled, you, you built like you, you do 12 hours of exercise a, a day. <laughs> There have been phases of that. There have been many, many phases of lots of exercise. But I love my exercise. I love being active. I love getting out there. And I love food. So it's a really, really awesome mix. And I think sort of your natural journey, if you are going to be big into exercise, is you are going to sort of ask the question, what do I eat? And for so many of us, um, we think that we can plow pies into our faces and then go for a bike ride twice a week and it'll burn itself off because now we're exercising. Yeah. We're getting our cardio up and we've been out for a whole 15 minutes. Why is the weight not falling off? And you just and can't do that, exactly. Because it's what you're putting in uh, yeah. that, that you're not getting getting rid of. There's the whole sort of like sort of, a, you know, fallacy that, that it's just calories in versus calories out. And I proved that wrong. I mean, you know, like when you when you sort of out there doing things like the Cape Epic or Ironman and you're burning like 10,000 calories a day or more and you're doing massive exercise sessions, the issue is you actually sort of don't burn off that, that, that sort of extra fat if you eat badly. And you find many, many people doing comrades and all kinds of big sports events are actually massively overweight and very unhealthy. And it doesn't help. You know, you, you've got to get good food. Um, you know, I used to be one of those guys who, you, you know, was uh, training for a triathlon, doing the Cape Epic, and popping into a sort of a garage on the way to a, to a meeting thinking, oh, I haven't eaten, and standing by the pie counter and thinking, which is the healthiest pie? And you go through... <laughs> is, is there... Because I'll, I'll have spinach and feta because that's got to be healthier than the steak and kidney. Well, I went sausage roll. I thought, you know, okay, sausage roll, okay, if I peel off half of the outside and eat the inside, that must be at least solid protein, but it's not. But, but those are the tricks we play that mm -hmm. we, 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 we choose to allow ourselves to be deceived by, our, uh, by what we have, want to have in that particular moment. Totally. And we, I, I mean, like food is all about that. We're just making these emotional choices about food um, and about nutrition. And often they're very, very wrong. The psychology of food is big and important, especially yes. when you go into the food industry. Mm. You've got to understand what motivates people with food. And nobody who's ever, who's never been on a diet can understand mm -hmm. how food can talk to you. Yeah. And food can call your name. Food knows your name. Bacon, it, bacon. Knows your name. Bacon knows my name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Calls me from the fridge. Hey, dude, without a doubt. I mean, you know, food, food really is a, is a, massive part of our lives if you think about it every single social event you have really is around food if it wasn't for food i mean you'd sit there staring at each other and uh, there'd be no real conversation food causes conversation it causes emotions to flow it causes sort of good times to happen as well so we've got a really emotional sort of strong strong um link to food well how do we celebrate oh we go out for a nice meal we don't go out for a nice walk up the mountain or for a swim in the sea or for a swim in emerential dam certainly not in or, joburg <laughs> no but, but but nobody's going to celebrate with a good family outing up a mountain no, no. Uh, because you know johnny did well in his report no, no. you go and spoil yourself with custard let's get out there and eat it and yeah you know, spoil yourself with some kind of sort of sugary carberry sort of food get high yeah. it is a high Basically, yeah, no, yeah. We, we reward ourselves with food and uh, it, it starts very, very early on. Um, take me back to before food um, and, and you were in mm. social media and technology, mm. that sort of space. I mean, was that your profession up until you had this, this food epiphany? Correct. Sort of, um, I started off originally in, in graphic design and I thought, well, a graphic design advertising. And I thought, well, let me just go down this route. I'm, I'm sure it'll go somewhere. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of a 
end point in mind. I always knew I'd have my own brand. So I started off in graphic design advertising, and then I got bored quite quickly and decided to move on to uh, onto web. I got involved in sort of web and, and social media. I got tired of sort of dealing with programmers who couldn't do what I needed. So, so I started programming as well. And just over the years, I got more involved in, in web, social media, um, online stuff, offline stuff, developing software and all kinds of things. And that just led me to the sort of point where one day I knew I'd have my own brand and I could go in and create like something like FitChef. Mm, okay. So the FitChef moment happened when you faced a problem. And that was that you were burning the calories, but you weren't burning the fat. You couldn't figure out in your own mind why it was mm. that you were eating healthily, as you put it earlier. And often what we think is healthy isn't actually that healthy. It isn't actually. Um, and so you then set about creating a business to solve the problem. Yeah. I mean, literally, I think sort of most businesses or good businesses, businesses come from that whole thing where you decide, you know, um, let's solve my issues. And if you can solve your own issues, the light comes on and you think, hang on a second, I can solve this for others too. And with me, the whole thing was like, I think 2000, 2009, 2010, I was um, working way too hard, doing all kinds of things. Um, and in 2009, 2010, over the two years, I, I was on 14 courses of antibiotics. I mean, here I am doing sort of Ironman, doing massive training sessions. Um, I'd done sort of 320 kilometer one day cycles, done, done a lot of sort of extreme stuff there. And I found I was just living sick all the time, living on antibiotics all the time, still overweight. And actually, I think the, the sort of light came on one day. It was three weeks before the main Ironman, the, the full Ironman. And um, a friend of mine saw me on the beach and said to me, Wayne, if only you could lose like five kilograms, you'd look great. And it's not a lot, but you think like, you know, here I'm burning, I mean, I'm, I'm exercising sort of like 10-hour exercise sessions, 12-hour exercise sessions, you know, cycling, you know, 250 kilometers before breakfast, just, before, just, just to warm up. Yeah? Before breakfast, exactly. That's it. <laughs> and, you know, he said to me, like, wait a minute, you know, if only you could lose, you know, five kilograms, you'd look great. And I thought, this is mad. I've just done a 180K cycle. I'm doing a 30K run this afternoon, and I've done an hour and a half swim this morning. This is mad. I, and I'm eating fairly well. I'd seen someone who said to me, this is, this is how you eat calories in versus calories out. I was, I was watching my food, and yet I was getting no results. And super sick, um, mentally sort of not focused, and I realized, yeah. So what, so, so what was the moment? I mean, how did the process, that transition go from being Mr. Dependent on, on antibiotics and, and Mr. Social Media yeah. to getting into a chefy business? Well the, well, the first thing that happened to me was I thought, okay, let me just um, head out to a sort of pharmacy and buy everything that says immune booster. And I literally came out with a trolley with about two and a half thousand rand worth of things that said immune booster. Did they work? No. <laughs> <laughs> and I tried a lot of things. I mean, I really sort of like pushed the limit, tested them out, all kinds of things. Then along came MasterChef. And MasterChef, I decided, you know what? I feel like entering MasterChef. I've always had loved you, food. Had, had you ever done, have you ever cooked with aggression before? I, I had originally when I was a kid. And, and like my whole plan originally was, was to go into, you know, sort of into food. Be, be a chef, but I'm incredibly fussy. So in our family, we are probably the most incredibly fussy people you've come across. We just don't eat all kinds of things. Tactile, defensive, this flavor, that flavor. And it's just really sort of like, no ways, I can't eat this food. We are super fussy. And so sort of when MasterChef came along and I thought, let me enter this. And I thought, well, you know what? I'll enter and I'm just going to eat whatever I need to eat just to sort of like, you know, learn the lessons. And uh, there's about a sort of nine-month buildup and I just did loads and loads of obsessive cooking i was really loving it and as i was cooking like in one evening i'd cook like 45 versions of one meal on a weekend i do 70 meals sometimes and my, my fridge and freezer were just overflowing with loads of sort of fresh and frozen food and for the first time ever i could just walk into the kitchen 
grab something out of the fridge or freezer, warm it up and eat it. And I'd made it. I knew what exactly what was in the food. I knew it was all the vegetables I'd peeled and chosen. I knew it was the sort of food I'd ask questions about, like saying, well, why do I need to add sugar? Surely I can add apple. Surely I can do this. And it was all these questions along. And all of a sudden, um, as I ate my own food, within, within three weeks of that there, I dumped the extra like five kgs and I was off antibiotics. And I thought, you know what? Food is more than just um, food. So, just- I mean, but food, food has become a convenience thing. I remember a classic Kevin Hedewick line as to why they were growing the famous brands business so rapidly is because people are time scarce and cash rich. Totally. Um, and so on the way home, oh, I need something, pizza. Um, you know, and, and, and pizza is the solution to, to many, many problems yeah. in the world except health. Yeah, it is without a doubt. And I think sort of convenience, I think why Fit Chef's done so well is because we, we sort of hit the convenience market really, really well. If you can, if we stock your whole freezer, if we, if we put 54 meals, or, you know, 60 meals and like 50 smoothies into your freezer in one go, all of a sudden your freezer turns into the most convenient food machine you've ever seen. And convenience drives us actually more than social, actually, even. So we eat for convenience because we run around, we do all kinds of things, we push ourselves hard, work, life, home, social life, and then decide now it's time for food. You've got to think of food first, but we haven't got the time and we don't like cooking. And yeah, but the thing is also if you plan your menus and you, and you start becoming a bit more predictable in your menus and you go back to old-fashioned mm. values of Monday it's this and Friday it's fish, um, whatever it might be, totally. and, and create a structure around your food, you've got to then be able to plan better and the planning almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Structure is critical. And I think that most people sort of realize, well, as you get more and more into food, that structure and that planning is the only thing that'll make a difference. Because unfortunately, good food doesn't just happen. You know, it takes cooking, it takes time, it takes preparation. Well, it, it takes it, it take it takes the planning to buy the stuff, to have it in stock, so that when you do the cooking, you're not going, oh, I forgot yeah, the beans. That's it. Uh, and and then by the time you you come back from the shops with the beans, you've lost your mojo and totally. You and left then, the pot on and it burnt anyway. And then it's the sort of like pizza, as you say. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to talk about how the business started, where the capital came from, um, and all of that in just a moment. My guest is Wayne Kaminsky, chief executive and founder at Fit Chef. How did you do in Master Chef that year? Actually, terribly. Because um, actually, so I entered um, on the night beforehand. You had to sort of like cook and get ready. Everyone was presenting sort of like puddings and those kind of things because you had to serve the meal at like between zero and four degrees Celsius. I decided to go in with a real complex meal, unfortunately. So I went in and um, actually overnight I prepared it, got ready to go, and I found that my meal had frozen. Um, and I had a lot of sort of fresh stuff in there as well, and it didn't work well. So what I did was I recooked the meal, got there a little bit late, and there were two and a half thousand people standing in the queue. Oh. It was about 37 degrees Celsius that day. It was super, super hot, standing in a massively long queue. By the time I got to the front and I opened up my cooler chest, it had collapsed, fallen over, something had, had fallen onto it. So I, I squished it together. I squished the whole meal together with my hands and thought, well, actually, first I left and thought, no, this is ridiculous. I'm going in. I, I've come all this way. I'm going to see it through, even though it's like never going to work. Squished it together, walked through, presented to the, um, to the chef, and he looked at me, and I thought, you're looking at me funny, but you don't know how much I've squished it with my hands. <laughs> he ate that. I left, and I... Never went back. Okay. But it changed. The point is you engaged in a process that did change your life. Correct. Guest this evening, Wayne Kaminsky, Chief Executive and Founder of FitChef. Are you a FitChef customer? What is it like? Give me a shout. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things.
Wankaminsky has just used such an interesting term. Our food is incredibly clean. You don't mean clean as in you scrub your potatoes really well, which I'm sure you do. I'm sure we do, yes. Um, but the recipes, it, it's, a, it's a purist approach to the preparation. It's a purist, old-fashioned approach. So my thing is that, you know, I'm always saying that, that no one is as obsessed about whole food as we are. Like, we only use whole food. I will not... What is in, whole food in the South African context? So, so whole food is basically sort of... It's, it's your vegetables. It's, it's your vegetables, your fruit, your, your, your whole vegetables, your whole fruit. It's, it's, it's your good, proper herbs. It's, it's proper quality salt. So, like, we, we use inland Kalahari salt, not this junk table salt. We use proper oils, things that are unprocessed. No chemicals, no man-made chemicals, no preservatives, no additives, no colorants, no flavorants. We use food as it actually is. If I want to sweeten something... I, we, we put in apples. If I want to cut something, we put in more tomato or more beetroot. It is completely sort of 100% what you'd consider sort of, you know, whole food from the whole, farm. Whole food but not organic because the organic thing no. is quite complicated thing and is, becomes very expensive and it's not always what it claims to be. Unbelievable. And actually, that's a key point. So organic is very good with the pesticide-free. But pesticide-free, you know, sort of in this country at the moment is very hard to get hold of. So, you know... We're all going to move towards the sort of pesticide-free concept, but it will take a long while to get there. How many people are you employing? We've got 70 people now. It's a lot. It, it's grown. a lot. And I just when I was going through your website earlier today, and there's a level of complexity I hadn't anticipated in terms of the variety and the versions and the kits mm. and the packages and the options. That's logistically must be a nightmare to manage. It's, we've run a massive business where, I mean, Logistics. I mean, we do our own deliveries, so it's it's deliveries. Our own marketing teams, video teams. We've got our own development teams because we're an online company. Social media teams, customer service. But that's service your background teams. coming in. Thank exactly. you very much, Thank which goodness. is helping build the business. And then retail. So one of our new things is retail. So we've gone massive out in retail. A lot of discams, Cecil's, spas, a lot of other shops as well. So there's been a. I mean, there's so many areas we've got to be good at. Yeah, it's a complex, complex business. It is complex, and you are dealing in fresh, and I mean fresh to frozen. Um, yes, but it's stuff doesn't last. You've got to process really quickly, um, and yeah. the, the, you've got to be operating a machine. Do you do all of that sort of production yourself? Yeah, we, we do. We work with some partners, but we, we, we handle everything internally. So we own as much as possible of that actual process. Yes. And how many? How, how do you measure how much you're doing? Is it in terms of customer accounts? Is it in terms of meals delivered? How does it work? It's meals delivered. And also sort of how many are now signing up for um, recurring orders. So how many customers love us enough to sign up for a recurring order and have an order that is delivered every single month? I think that that's a big positive. You know, if people are signing up, we've got some people who've been us, with us for four years now. But that's how banks measure it. I mean, they say if you are your primary bank account is with us, you are our customer. You're getting your salary paid and you're paying your debit orders out of our account. That's the kind of customer you're wanting um, to be committed to. Totally. How flexible are you in terms of when people go on holiday and suspend accounts and all of that sort of stuff? Happens all the time. So sort of, you know, with our sort of clientele, I mean, you know, they generally tend to travel a lot. They're, they're you know, they're wealthy. Well, they're wealthy, without a doubt. And, and, and they're too, sort of too busy. They need good food. They need performance food. They need real food. They appreciate real. So we just, we just pause. We pause um, recurring orders very, very often. Okay. Um, in terms of what a family of four well-heeled a well-heeled family of four is going to spend on a monthly basis if they order their dinners from you for example and maybe kids snack packs or kids lunch boxes because i see there's an option on that particular front what's it going to cost it's going to cost you sort of in the region of about for about four of you probably about four thousand rand i'd say uh, four thousand 
depending on what you want to go for, if you want to go for a lot of extra options, you know, it can go up. Mm-hmm. It depends on sort of how many of the meals you want. As you say, sort of, if it's just dinners, um, that's going to be sort of, you know, probably sort of three, 4,000 Rand. If you go up from there and you're wanting all your meals, 100% of your meals, um, that's great, um, but it is going to cost a bit more. Explain the delivery process. So the delivery process, basically, in general, you'd place your order online. You'd go through and select either a 21-day challenge or your own selection. Um, Do you have set menus? So you say, I couldn't be bothered. I mean, one of the things that puts people off uh, buying um, buying the groceries online is you've got to click on Stay Soft. Lots of stuff. Lavender, lemon, guava, whatever flavor Stay Soft comes in. Um, And and it's an incredibly (laughs) boring, clicky process. You, You promise to make it fun and say, look, we'll challenge you. You've got any allergies? and then deliver. That's it. So, look, I mean, people people do love, you know, sort of um, um, just simplicity. And I think when, you, when you've got tons of choices, I mean, like, you know, you go to the movies and, and like you all know what popcorn and, and sort of your, your soft drink is and your, you know, your sweet of choice. But, you, but you're going to go along and select combo number one or two. And I've always said that that's the way... Um, why we've done actually 21-day uh, challenges or challenge kits. So you come along and just say, first time, I want these, give me that quickly. That's a quick decision. And then you taste all the food. What we find is with, with recurring customers and other customers, they say, I like that, I like that, I love that. I'll do with those. I'll have smoothies. I'll have, I'll have these snacks. And there's lots of flexibility then. But initially, we prefer that they actually do come and just say, just buy a 21-day kit. Uh, and why do you call it your 21-day challenge? What was the challenge okay. aspect of it? Is this bringing your, your OCD exercise nature to the That's course? basically <laughs> it. It's sort of kind of, can you challenge your, yourself to eat clean for 21 days? So, so look here, I mean, most people do live on a, on a very high-carb, high-sugar junk food diet, really. I mean, that's, that's, that's sort of most people, really. So what happens is you, you come along and you want to eat good quality food. So first of all, there's a bit of a change in your, in your palate. Now, I always compare this to, you know, First time you had good whiskey and wine, it was like, that stuff is disgusting. Like, how do people drink whiskey and wine? And over time, you got used to the, the proper flavors and, the, and, and, and you appreciate sort of what good quality drinks were like. And it's the same with food. If you're so used to having just sugary, sweet mm. junk, when you get to real food, like sometimes it's a bit like, oh, it's a bit lumpy or it's, it's, it's a wrong color or was brighter last time, it was, it was more green this time, or whatever it may be. And actually, there's, there's variation, and, and you've got to get used to these things. But I tell you what, it is a journey worth going on. Okay. Now, the delivery mechanism. Place an order online. D- does it get delivered in a cold box within yeah. two hours of order um, and packed into the freezer for you? How does the process we work? We usually got like a sort of a two to eight day, uh, eight working day sort of um, um, delay. Depending on sort of what actually is going on. So are you cooking to order? No, um, we, so we just we we actually so so we've got loads of trucks out there delivering all the time, but basically sort of most people sort of go online, the um, payments clear, they decide sort of I want it on this day or that day, I've got a domestic at home or I've got a helper or come to my office and deliver at the office, and just basically it's a case of just planning, pack the thing, confirm it's been packed. Um, double check by sort of internal staff and then just shipped off. And we ship everything in, in uh, frozen trucks. So we're a frozen food business. All our trucks go out at minus 18 degrees and they're delivering in, in big sort of like frozen boxes, um, proper cardboard double layer boxes. Gets delivered to your office and, and that'll easily sort of stay frozen for, you know, 16, 18 hours. Okay. No problem at all. I mean, how difficult was it setting up this business? Incredibly hard. I mean, was so, there Was there a point where you went, Whose dumb idea was this? Oh, many times. We've lain on the ground and thought, this is ridiculous. <laughs> How could it be so hard, actually? And I think that's the normal thing. So, I mean, first of all, we started off and, you know, I sort of started making the food um, myself, obviously. And, uh, you know, you can't get very far like that because you're out doing marketing and seeing people, trying to sort of organize things. And you're chop, stocking, uh, chopping carrots. Chopping carrots. Yeah. It doesn't work. So, actually, I had someone else come in and actually do that for me. Now, 
we would sort of launch a, a campaign online on on Facebook, and next thing we'd sell out of all of our food. So one point we, th- we thought, okay, let's let, let's go big. We're going to cook for three weeks. We're going to sort of advertise for two days. And then we're going to actually turn it off and we're just going to sort of like deliver everything. In those two days, I had to turn the advertising campaigns off at a day and a half. And uh, we'd sold out of all the food we had made for the last three weeks and the food we could make for the next three weeks. And we decided this is crazy. We can't do it. We've got to go far bigger. And you have to scale. You have to scale. Where did the money come from? And so basically, um, look, myself really, (laughs) it was a case of just find it wherever you possibly could. And I think that's the way to go. It was a case of just like think smart, think smart, think smart, try and find partners, try and find deals, try and find something actually. And it got to a point where we just tried so hard and we were just thinking like, well, how do we get to the next step? Because we just could not scale big enough. And literally, um, we had a little bit of a, a meeting down in Cape Town. So we were up in Joburg in Cape Town. And we're down in Cape Town. And uh, we were all sort of, we had these sort of presentations down in Cape Town. And uh, while we're sort of sitting around chatting between things, I kept on saying to my partners, guys, because I brought in some partners then, I had a partner and I brought in my two brothers into the business. I said, guys, we have got to scale this business. Like, what do we do? And we thought about all kinds of things. I said, come, we've got to think out of the box, out of the box, out of the box. How do we do this? And, and we are actually um, at Spear Wine Farm and I got a couple of bottles of this cre- creative block number five <laughs> and number three, you know, it's awesome. Are those, are those the most creative blocks? That is, that, and that, that removed all creative blocks. What we found is we sat there and literally that month, it was basically sort of like, you know, that was in um, September and we had sold like 60,000 Rand worth of food. And we were like, how can we hit the next phase? And we literally sort of, after many sort of bottles of creative block, we just said, Next month, let's sell a million rand. And we were like, yes, that's a great idea. So I got back on a plane the next day. We had a launch party in the morning, sort of at some, some CrossFit box. Got on a plane, got back to Joburg. And on the plane, we worked out what do we need for a million rands worth of food. Got hold of my kitchens as I arrived in Lanseria. And I said, guys, you've got to see this email. I need a response immediately on Monday morning. They looked at it and they said, this is impossible. We cannot scale that fast. I said, could you try? And they said, um, they'll give it a bash anyway. So they sort of cooked food for about a week, delivered our first couple of batches up. I'd never seen so much food arrive. We hit the button and uh, we did just under a million rand that month. And setting big targets has worked. Setting big targets worked and just taking a massive risk and just going for it. Sometimes you just got to sort of like say, this is it, go. How much are you doing a month now? Well over that, well over. (laughs) (laughs) Multiples of that. Multiples, multiples of that, yes, yeah, yeah. Multiples of multiples, so tens of multiples. (laughs) It's getting there. And it's been going for four years? Five years now, almost five years. Is it possible to grow a consumer business in a broken economy? Wayne Kaminsky's experience suggests that it can give people what they want, give it to them when they want it, how they want it, deliver it to them and tell them that they're getting a great deal and they're going to be better off for it. And you've got yourself a business. That's what Wayne Kaminsky has done, chief executive and founder at FitChef. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. What a great shapeshifter. What a great evening. Thank you so much for listening. Back again tomorrow. It is the eve of the public holiday, but normal programming on The Money Show. Warren's in, Pavlo's in, plus all the big money stories on The Money Show. It's 8 o'clock. Good night.